0: Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturvens. Every year about this time, every year, as we approach the holidays, I will get this question from one or ten people. And it involves the, the scripture and the principle <clears throat> that is first quoted in Exodus 20 and is mentioned four to five other occasions of scripture. And it's this, because we've heard it preached that um, things my great grandfather or grandfather have done have resulted in a curse. Because Exodus chapter 20, in its earliest, the earliest reference in scripture, Verses five and six, listen, this is where it first shows up in Scripture. And this is a popular phrase in the mouth of of believers. Um, You shall not worship them. He's talking about idols. You need to go back and read this entire section. It's about the 10 commandments or the 10 words, decalogue, whatever whatever appropriate label you would choose. But the instruction coming from God through Moses says, You shall not worship them, idols that is, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, watch, on the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but, watch, showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Every year I get this question, and it's probably been, I don't know, five or eight years since I've dealt with this subject pointedly. What I'm about to teach, some of you, and I'm not saying this to be sensational, some of you will be disrupted by it. Um, Matter of fact, the last time I taught this, we had a couple of people leave the fellowship because it was sort of a a doctrinal breaking point for them. But I'm going to go ahead and make this statement. There are entire seminars, schools, and conferences that are built on learning how to break generational curses. I mean, it's just become so popular in the last 30 or 40 years. All I'm gonna do this morning is give you Scripture, and more Scripture than you typically receive here on a Sunday morning, because I usually like to deal with one focused passage and then speak to the poetry and implications of that. But I want you to see the overwhelming volume of Scripture that deals with this specific topic. Now. I want to read a passage that we're going to land on but i'm just going to go ahead and read it jeremiah chapter thirty-two, excuse me jeremiah 31 we're going to start at verse 27 jeremiah 31 verse 27 hallelujah hallelujah father may your favor be upon us it is upon us it is upon us you've promised that favor favor now i want to make this statement where wrath is present Mercy has been withdrawn. Where mercy is present, wrath is gone. From the front of Scripture to the end, we taught on this several weeks ago, Pastor Matt addressed it, I followed up on it in talking about this whole notion of wrath and judgment right through to the very end of the Bible when Jesus the Lamb, the Son, sits on this judgment, great white judgment throne and executes judgment on those who have not received Him as Savior. But the thing is, what we've learned, go back and listen to those. I'll try to find links. Send me an email, tom at Online, and I'll give you the links. But the solid principles are this. Wherever mercy is present, <clears throat> excuse me, wherever wrath is present, mercy has been withdrawn. Wherever mercy is present, wrath is gone. And that's replete again and again and again throughout scripture that's important as we read the passage of scripture we're about to read because you're going to read hear the word loving kindness a bunch this morning that word loving kindness is otherwise mercy two words we use we learned last week in the old testament are translated loving kindness or mercy one of them speaks to god's loyalty to refuse to abandon us and the other one refers to the God's love and compassion driving him to us. So he is driven to us by mercy, but he also refuses to join us in our own destruction by mercy. That is so important. Go get last week's teaching. Listen to that. Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of the beast, sorry if it's not time to unpack that this morning, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster, how many know, this doesn't sound real good. So I will watch over them to build and to plant. In other words, in that statement, he said, you think I watch over only to do this one thing, but here's, I'm actually doing something else in a very positive nature, watch this. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Every commentator will tell you that that is a poetic reference to Exodus 20 and every other place where it says, but the sins of the fathers will be visited upon the third and the fourth generation. God shows up and says, you've been using that as an excuse to not follow me and not believe. God says I'm going to cause that proverb to be shut. He said I'm going to cause that proverb not to be spoken. Watch verse 30. But everyone will die for his own iniquity — in other words, what he does is going to be on him — each man who who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. But behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the house of Judah, not like the covenant which their fathers were with their fathers in the day I took them by, uh, excuse me, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Watch verse 33. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, what you need to know is that prophecy refers to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're gonna look at that in just a few moments. This prophecy of uh, the seven, six, seven hundred years before the time of the New Testament and Paul would be given, and he said, I'm not gonna write it on tablets of stone, I'm gonna write it on your heart. That, that's a powerful point of promise. Now, I want to say again, am I cursed with a curse because of what my grandparents or great-grandparents have done? I've been asked that again probably 10 times in the last month, six weeks. As we approach the holidays, it seems that family memories and echoes and whatever stir up good things, but they can also stir up negative things. Now. I've already read to you the starting place for this Scripture. I want to read to you nearly every occurrence that that phrase shows up in the Bible because we need to see the context, and can I go ahead and give it away? When Jesus paid the price of the curse, any curse, through His blood, there is nothing that towers above the blood of Jesus Christ. There is nothing, I'm gonna go ahead and give it away. There's nothing that granddaddy, great granddaddy, great mama, great grandmama, great anybody has done that trumps the favor of God. I'm pointing now at the table of communion because right as Brenda was coming out to lead you into it, I said, stop. Because we're going to have a breakthrough at the table of the Lord today, right in the face of dedicating a small child and declaring their tomorrows will be filled with mercy and favor. We're going to come recapture some of our own by the means it was appropriated. And what I mean by that is the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the price for mercy he paid the price wrath will come at the end of the age and mercy will be withdrawn but right now beloved james 2 13 says mercy triumphs over judgment and that is by the blood of jesus christ let's read the scripture exodus 34 i'm about to read with you to you pay attention please follows up exodus 33 from last week last week we studied exodus 33 moses had been on the mountain He'd received the commandments, he had come down, the people uh, of Israel were worshiping a golden calf, idol worship, gone crazy, and God says, you know, I'm not even going to go with him, I'll let an angel go, but I'm going to go with you. And Moses objects and says, that's not the God you are. And so in the middle of the conversation, he says to God, show me your glory. I need to see you, I need to experience you, why? And God says this to him, he says, I will let you see my glory, and when I pass by you, you will know I am good. We talked about that at length. Turn to the person next to you and say, more than anything else, God is good. Tell them that. Look them right in the face. This chapter follows that experience okay he said lord show me your glory now watch what happens because watch see because god is enacting judgment on the people of israel for what they've done now moses is crying out for mercy something happens here so he says lord show me your glory god says okay now we're at chapter 34 and god's about to show him his glory verse 6 then the lord passed by in front of him moses and proclaimed The Lord, the Lord God, what does He come proclaim? Mercy, compassionate is that word loving kindness or mercy. The first thing He says, He says, I am a God of mercy. I am a God of great grace. I am slow to anger, abounding, and then He uses the other word for mercy. He says, I am a God that's loyally committed but a God driven by love. And God clears up the whole thing. He says, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. Beloved, the way that 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 scripture is often read, all the way through to Romans 9, where only a portion of it is referenced. So often it's presented, watch, by the preacher, the teacher, wanting people to be caught off guard by how ready God is to judge us with something that our great-grandfather did. But the surprise God is wanting to bring to us here, and we'll see it in a moment, Surprise, surprise, is although you may have done all of this terrible stuff deserving of one thing, the moment you turn towards me, I am not a God driven by judgment. I'm a God driven by mercy. I'm a God driven by mercy that's committed to you, driven by a love that draws me to you. It's nothing you've done. Mercy pushes. Mercy compels. It's mercy that drives me. Do you understand, humans love another human? because of an intrinsic quality or something they've done. I wish I could tell you that I was so noble from the very first moment I saw my wife and was starstruck that I could tell you I felt my compassion arising in me as a benevolent gesture towards this woman who was clearly in need of the great mercy that could flow only through my great condescension. And so I presented myself as an option to her for the rest of her life, which she would be obviously unable to refuse given my magnificent sense of glory radiated. Yeah. You get that? That's not what happened. That's not what happened. I looked and said, oh my. Then I saw her leading worship and said, oh my. Then I just watched her walk around saying, oh my. Then I watched her all the time saying, oh my. Yeah. Yeah, see, I would like to tell you that I was driven just out of the goodness and essence of who Tom is. To extend love to her. That's what it went about. I looked and said, oh my. <laughs> see, humans love for a reason. God loves because of who he is. Mercy drives him towards us because of who he is, not what we've done. Guess what? The good news is what we've done won't drive him away either. Now, He won't bless our stupidity. He won't join our sin or destruction. I'm hanging out too long. And I got too many scripture to read to you, okay? Uh, verse 34, chapter 34, verse six, and the Lord passed by and the Lord God said, uh, the, the Lord God, excuse me, proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving, compo- loving kindness and truth, Ooh, unhiddenness, who keeps loving kindness, watch, He's cleaning up the thing from the last thing, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Do you see — in other words, we pluck one little Scripture, do whole seminars on it, without reading everything that's said about it. Every time you read it, God says, I'm pretty excited. I've got a whole bank account of judgment that I, and, and wrath that I just can't wait to dump out on you. God never emphasizes that. He said, when I come to people who are deserving, they will indeed be punished." But look at the four primary indicators. Great in compassion, loving kindness, mercy, grace being extended. That's the God. And so following this, in fact, He relents and says, okay, I'm going to go with you. Now, that's a, a whole other story uh to discuss in terms of of lots of questions we have about how what god knows and doesn't i dealt with some of that a couple of weeks ago allow us to keep moving please numbers 14. they're now in the wilderness they failed to go in at the promised land here's i'm just reading you the occurrences this shows up the lord is slow to anger abundant loving kindness forgiving iniquity and transgression but he will by no means clear the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations But do we get this watch this? Please listen. I hope this will be a real point of revelation for you Do you understand as we get saddled up to go to the next breaking the curse seminar That if what we read here in scripture is true, not one time does God say it's the devil doing it He said it's me God says whatever comes in terms of wrath is because you've so insisted on resisting mercy. Wrath is all that's left, but that's not my first first option. But here's the simple thing, beloved. Do you understand you're going to a seminar to discover how to undo what God is doing? There ain't no seminar that's gonna overcome God. Forgive me for being mildly sarcastic, but God doesn't show up and say, what am I gonna do now? They got a seminar that totally just undoes my intentions. You can't undo what God's gonna do. This is, he is not saying, and it's the devil, He he's saying, this is me. What I'm, the promise I'm headed towards here, well, you'll see where it lands, okay. Keep going, Tom. Keep going. Numbers 14, verse 33, just a few verses later. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the, here's the balance of mercy and wrath. Your sons shall be shepherds in, for the wilderness, in the, 40 years in the wilderness. They will suffer for your unfaithfulness, watch, until your corpses lie in the wilderness. So is there a penalty for Tom? Is there a sense of residue growing up in the house of a man who was an alcoholic and suffered with alcoholism? Absolutely. But does the grip of that judgment and that weakness of human flesh that held a grip on my father for so much of his life until, praise God, he was delivered and accepted Christ as Savior. Never drank another drop. Man, how amazing is that? But here's the good news. God doesn't follow me around saying, you know, because of what your father did, you're hopeless. He says to Tom, no longer will that be on your mouth. Because what I did on the cross is greater than what your father has ever done in your life. The cross is the point of favor. The cross is the point where that curse was broken, where curses are broken. Beloved, we need to receive that, and we need to know, as we're about to do in a few minutes, pray for a child and their children, and their children, and their generation. That, Father, you would bless them, and keep them, and cause your face to shine on them. That, Father, you have nothing but mercy you desire to give this child. And some of us this morning are gonna make our way to the table of the Lord And one more time, say, Father, may the blood of the Lamb wash away the primary understanding of my posture towards you, that you're waiting to judge me, beat me down, and beat me up. No, sir. You are a God that's waiting to give me mercy, compassion, love, grace, and anything I will receive. Do you understand that judgment comes by my decision, not his? I invite it on me. All right, let's keep going. Jeremiah 32. Ah, Lord God, verse 17 and 18, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. I love to talk about that. Everybody say difficult. No, say it again. Difficult. It's only used a very few times in the Bible. It's used here. It's used one time when, um, Abraham, uh, uh, an angel appears to Abraham, remember he's an old guy and says, you're gonna have a child and he goes, well, clearly you don't know how old we are. And in that sitting. The angel says, nothing's too difficult for God. Here, Jeremiah says, nothing's too difficult for God. When when Mary, the Virgin Mary, was conceived, the Holy Spirit would overshadow her, and she would be inseminated with the, the, um, the human being that would be born as the Christ child, the Son of God among us in the flesh. She turns and she goes, look, I'm just a teenager. I've never even been with anybody. He goes, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And she goes, alas, nothing's too hard for God. But here's the cool thing, beloved. When the prophet begins to prophesy in Isaiah chapter nine and he said about the Messiah coming at this time of the year, Christmas, and says, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and his name will be called, watch, wonderful. Very first name. Did you know that is the identical word translated difficult or impossible? He said, that doesn't make sense. See, Hebrew words are so cool. They have a negative and positive polarization. You see, when they looked at this and say, nothing's too hard for God, you tend to look at how bad a situation is and says, that is just, that's, that, that's just impossible. To, there's nothing that can fix that. And then when you look over on this side and you view our coming Messiah and Savior, he said, I want you to know that for every darkness, Isaiah 9 talks about it, we'll hit that next week, for every darkness that would come up and vanquish the hope of possibility, I want you to know that for those impossible situations I've sent, I'm sending a redeemer that comes from the land of impossible, that comes from the land of wonder. And he is the one who will personally show up and say, I'm about to fix what you think is impossibility, watch, because I am more wonderful than it is impossible. Somebody needs to hear me this morning, that our Savior is more wonderful than our life is impossible. I want to say that again. That, we have a Savior that is more wonderful than our life is impossible. I may say that 10 more times, that we've got a Savior that is more wonderful than my life is impossible. We have a Savior that is more wonderful than my life is impossible. I've never done this before. I can't quit it. We have a Savior that is more wonderful than life is impossible. He proved it in the manger, He proved it through the cross. He celebrated it in resurrection. And when he comes back, he will have the final word on I'm all about wonderful, come now. Somebody needs to praise God, all right. Ezekiel chapter 18. There's 23 verses, I can't read them all. But just get get the idea. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb? Concerning the land of Israel saying the father's eat sour grapes But the children's teeth are set on edge watch what God says as I live declares the Lord You are surely not going to use this proverb anymore. What proverb is that? Well because my great-grandfather's did it and my great-grandfather was a drunk and my father was a drunk I'm gonna be a drunk. God said it doesn't work that way Because their failure doesn't have more power than my promise Behold, all souls are mine. Watch what Scripture says. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteous, righteousness and does not eat at mountain shrines, now three times he gives this list of things. Doesn't eat at mountain shrines, lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, defile his neighbor's wife, approach a woman. He's just got this list of, of examples of rhetorical expressions. Um, uh, verse eight, if he doesn't lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his land, blah, blah, blah. If he walks in my statutes, verse nine, verse 10, here it comes. Then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of these things. By, by the way, let me go back to verse nine. I didn't finish it, Amanda. I'm trying to get through all these scriptures and skipping it. If he walks by my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully he is righteous and will surely live okay watch this say he has a son that doesn't do those things you keep reading and he says he'll be judged for his sons for his sins and but say the bad son then has another son who lives well god says i will judge him righteously and you say but wait a minute shouldn't he be judged for the sins of the father let's get to the end um Uh, Verse 22 all his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of the righteousness Which he has practiced he will live verse 23 Do I have any pleasure in the death of wicked see? We have a posture towards God that he's sitting on the edge of his throne looking for an opportunity to fry us Beloved we got to get that fixed. That's not the God we've served It doesn't make sin Okay, sin kills us and God's vicious against sin because he doesn't want us to die Decl- uh, the, excuse me, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. Do you see what God's saying? He says the, the power of the potential generations, hmm. okay, let me just stop. Let's go back to Jeremiah 32, where we started. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man, with the seed of a beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow and destroy, to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Skip to verse 33 with me, please. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. For those after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Go with me immediately. I told you lots of scripture today. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 2 through 4, and then jump to verse 15. This is Paul writing. This is New Testament. It's after the Old Testament, for those of you that are new, in your walk with the Lord. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he writes, You are our letter, written on our hearts. Now watch how he picks up the poetic... (laughs) license of this letter written on the heart he says you're our letter written on our hearts known and read by all men being manifested that you are watch not you are a letter of christ cared for by us written not with ink but with the spirit of the living god remember the promise i'm going to write on their hearts by the spirit not on tablets of stone But on tablets of human hearts, such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Skip right ahead to verse 15. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Everyone look this way. He's referring to Jewish people who have not yet accepted Christ. And he says they don't get it. But watch. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Beloved, please hear me, that does not just pertain to the refusal of Jewish worshipers to accept Christ as Messiah. In other words, when they turn away and say, I believe you are the Lord, the Messiah, their eyes will be open. But this is also a promise to us because when we sin, we turn away from him. We don't walk in His declared source of worth. Sin is finding my identity outside of God. Sin is believing another opinion about my worth other than God's. We study that and talk about that. And when they turn away, watch what happens. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, hallelujah, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Watch me. Jeremiah 32 points directly to 2 Corinthians 3 that talks about transformation. Jeremiah 32 was talking about the power of judgment. 2 Corinthians 3 is talking about the power of transformation. Jeremiah 32 talks about what my great-grandfather, grandfather, grandfather, and father have done, and the possibilities of the overflow of that psychosocial and emotional environment flowing down. And can it affect my life? It absolutely can. Are there ways that I'm like my dad, that I don't enjoy having those traits? There absolutely are, but God is redeemed. Redeeming them God won't be done until I'm done because that genetics does not have the final word over what God will do in my heart Please hear this statement. What transformation says is what God can do now Presently is greater than what anyone has done in the past. I want to say that Because it's Jeremiah. Please look at me It's Jeremiah not Tom that points towards 2 Corinthians 3, and he says, there are indeed things written on your heart. There are things written on your heart that you've allowed to that has blocked your view to God. But the moment you turn from them, I want you to know that there's a God here waiting to transform the iniquity and brokenness of the past. Transformation. Listen, beloved. You can say generational curse, generational curse. God says, I started a new generation at the cross. He says that. He says, I've got a new family, new tribe, new bloodline that started at the cross of Christ. I don't care what my father's done, and he did a lot. It does not have the power to dictate transformation or the limitation of that. God says, I still can transform. Watch this. I hope somebody remembers this. In the very beginning, the word is used, Genesis chapter 1. That the Holy Spirit hovered over the formlessness. The Father spoke and creation was formed. Everybody said, what God formed. Then the adversary shows up, whispers a lie, and tells mankind, God really knows stuff that he's not telling you. And he drops this seed of suspicion we looked at last week. What God formed, the devil deformed. Everybody say deformed. What God formed and the devil deformed the blood of Jesus Christ Reforms I want you to get that say what God formed? the devil deformed but the cross reformed and the Holy Spirit Transforms what God formed his original word and when we oh my goodness When you read Revelation about a scroll that's been sealed up, God's original intention, and then the lamb shows up and takes it and says, this has been sealed up since the last day of Eden, Father. Your will has been all wrapped up, bound up. There's no one worthy to open it. But then that lamb of the cross steps up and says, hand it to me. And he starts to open it. And he says, everything that was sealed up due to your sin is now being opened up because of my death. Somebody needs to hear that. There is nothing, if my great-grandfather or grandfather or father or great-great-grandfather has more power than the power of the cross, I am in trouble. I don't need to come back here another day, another time. I don't need to sing another song of praise. But, beloved, I'm telling you, there's nothing that God cannot transform. I don't care what is being visited upon you. I don't care what family get-together that you may have that's a nightmare, who you see, what you're reminded of, or what echoes of the past. Father, break that bondage. Break those chains right now, today, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what we're about to do. I'm about to use baby Billy as an anvil of your blessing. One of the very first acts of worship that this baby child will have been involved in is not only a dedication, there's a possibility that these two parents that know God, love God, and are committed to God, and are ready to assist God in seeing that the Word of God is written on the heart of this child. While that may may not be true for every child, and they won't be perfect. There are no perfect ones. But here's the point of promise. That there's a God... (laughs) that would speak to baby Billy and say, I'm waiting in your tomorrows. I'm waiting for you. Because there's going to come a moment when you and I have a personal conversation, a personal confrontation, when you're going to know me and make your own declaration. And I want you to know that there will be nothing that has ever transpired that is greater than the power of God to transform. Does anybody hear me today? We need to get this because we, we, we. And because we constantly blame what's happened, we render, the, I keep pointing to these communion trays, we render the blood of God inert, the blood of Jesus Christ inert. I mean, Lord, I'm cursed with a curse because of what my grandfather did. Beloved, that's not what the Bible says. There is the potential of the fallout of decisions and choices. I read that to you in Numbers 14. It was the sep- second verse. Remember, it says, I'm sorry, I moved past it because I was wanting to rush, 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 where it said, you will suffer in the desert, watch, until all your parents are died, but you'll go into the promised land. Anybody see mercy working there? It says, now there are others who have made choices. He's speaking to the children. There's your parents have made choices. And unfortunately, some of that fallout, watch me. Some of that fallout is going to fall on you and for 40 years you're going to wander around in the desert but I want you to know at the end of the day mercy will triumph because at the end of the day I've made a provision and a promise for you to bring you into the promised land They're going to, your parents are going to be judged Oh, ah, Luke chapter 1 uh, verse 72 this is good now Luke chapter 1 is the first chapter of the gospel of Luke and those of you who are new. It's the story of the birth of John the Baptist from the parents of Zacharias and Elizabeth who are both like 80 plus. It's a fun story. I love talking about, it. I'm sure before we get through the Christmas season, I'll have fun with it again. Zacharias is a priest An angel appears to him while he was in ministry in the Holy of Holies and said, you're going to have a child. Zechariah says, do you know how old I am, dude? And the angel looks, Gabriel looks totally shocked because he has come from a dimension where when God speaks, that's just the way that it is. No one contests it. And so now he, here he is with God's earthly representative and he expects him to have a better response than he had. Because he says to him, well, you don't know how old I am. And Gabriel says, and, um, I'm Gabriel. How many you know that's not a good comeback in an argument? I mean, I really believe that for that moment the angel was sort of speechless because he says, I, I, I'm Gabriel. And you're not going to talk anymore. You're going to be mute until the child's born. Okay, that happens. Now, verse 72, the child's born. Zechariah rises, and I believe with uplifted hands of oath and covenant. Right? There's a reason for that. And he begins to speak. He says, blessed be the Lord God who has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This is John uh, Zechariah speaking. And has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David, his servant. He's speaking about Jesus as he spoke by the mouth of holy prophets from old. Watch what happens here. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show judgment towards our fathers because I visit the sins of the fathers upon the third and fourth generation. That is not what it says, is it? What's happening here? God says, I want you to know and I'm showing up after the third and the fourth and the fifth and the 10th and the 20th generations of sinful behavior. He says, I want you to know what I'm showing up with is this. I didn't come to show mercy. Judgment. I came to show mercy toward our fathers and to all who remember his holy covenant. And he goes on to talk about them. Verse 78. Skip ahead. I believe it's 78. And you, child, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sun rises from on high with this, look this way, shouldn't he have otherwise said as a a priest of God, and the Lord is here to visit us and to make final payment because you guys have done such a crappy job of following him and worshiping him. He's here to give you what was promised, not really because you did it, but because, you know, all that stuff in the wilderness happened. Sorry, you got to pay the check. That is not what's being said. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.